Today's episode is brought to you by Craftsy. Calling all crafters, are you ready to dive deep into your favorite crafting projects and learn new techniques along the way? Then it's time to join Craftsy Premium Membership. For only $1.49, you'll receive a full year of access to expert-led tutorials, patterns, and projects in every category you can imagine. With a massive library of resources at your fingertips, you'll be able to create your best work yet and bring your crafting dreams to life. Don't wait. Sign up now at CraftsyOffers.com and discover the endless possibilities of Craftsy Premium Membership. Thank you so much, Craftsy. And now, here's the show. Welcome to episode 243 of the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Craft Industry Alliance is a community for craft professionals where you can strengthen your creative business, stay up to date on industry news, and build connections within our supportive trade association. Check it out at craftindustryalliance.org. Today on the show, we're talking about quilting with my guest, Victoria Finlay Wolf. Victoria's work balances between art quilting, traditional, and modern quilting styles and reflects her passion for exploring the fine art of quilting in the modern age. A farm girl raised in Minnesota, her influences are heavily based on her grandmother's scrappy, colorful, double-knit polyester quilts. Victoria considers her process as an artist and storyteller by incorporating memories of life, travels, and nature to all that she does. Victoria is an international award-winning artist and quilter, and she teaches and lectures on creativity and process. She's a fabric designer, an author, and an online shop owner, where she sells her own products. Her quilts have been exhibited all over the globe, including Japan, Australia, London, and she loves her family even more than she loves her quilts. So Victoria Finlay-Wolf, welcome. Thank you for having me, Abby. Yeah, I'm so happy to have you here. Um, and so let's start with um, you growing up because it, it sounds to me like your um, your family were kind of textile people, um, both your parents and your grandmother as well when you were growing up in Minnesota. So tell us a little bit about um, your childhood and that period of your life. Yes, I grew up on a farm in Minnesota. Uh, my father had an upholstery business, which he also ran on the farm. So he was sewing and using textiles. And my mother worked for Finger Hut for a while, not forever, but for a good portion of time where she was uh, sewing winter clothes and double knit polyester clothing and, you know, all those kinds of things. And so she was very artsy in her own right. She would never call herself an artist, but she'd paint. She'd have lots of different supplies around the house that were always interesting from fabrics to uh paint in tubes if you remember those uh we used to color in the dish towels on the farm and instead of embroidering them but I certainly learned embroidery and all of those things as a little kid so I was always around a lot of different textiles and then of course the quilts that we slept under were made by my grandmother and they were you know, those double knit polyester really heavy two layers of polyester batting inside them and my grandmother would hand stitch all of those scraps the bags of fabrics that my mom was getting from finger hut. My grandma would then sew those down onto a sheet and make them into a tied quilts. 
And, and those are what of, we used on the farm. Yeah. What kind of farm was this? Was this like a working farm? Were you actually yes. also growing produce and things like that? Yes, we had cows, we had pigs, we had 365 acres of land that we had to pick rocks and bale hay and do all of that fun stuff all year round. Yeah. Wow. Big old okay. garden, grew everything, canned everything. Yeah, definitely. Out in the wow. middle of nowhere. Yeah. That's great upbringing. <laughs> and, and, um, and spending time with your grandmother, it seems like was also important for you when you were a child. Yeah, that was a very big departure from where we lived. They were four hours south down in the little Mississippi River town, um, southern Minnesota. Um, gorgeous little, it's a very popular tourist town now because it's on the Mississippi and it's beautiful and there's an Eagle Center and all of that. And so when we would go down there, she lived in town. We could ride our bicycles on tar roads, not the dirt roads where it was all by us by on the farm. And, you know, run through the alley and go to the store and buy candy. And, you know, those are all highlights of, <laughs> of a childhood, of a happy childhood is running around the streets in town. Um, and, and also running through the garden. She had a huge garden outside. And all of those things really are things that I'm still connected to today through her quilts, through baking, through cooking, through canning, all of that stuff is all the stuff that we did as a kid are still the things that I'm absolutely obsessed with now. And tell us a little bit about what double knits are, because this was a huge sewing trend um, and and to make like double knit clothing. And there were like shops dedicated to this and patterns. Well, a moment, and, yeah, a moment in time where yeah. there wasn't really quilt shops and cotton was sort of lesser known. So all those double knit polyester, any polyester knits were usually what you were finding in the in the fabric shops. For my grandmother, though, she was an arthritic invalid by the time she was 40, meaning her hands were frozen, her hips and shoulders were frozen, knees were frozen. And um, she found it super easy to be able to push a needle through spongy double knit polyester. So that was it was convenient for her when she couldn't bend her fingers. It was a way for her to continue to sew. She couldn't use the scissors, certainly wasn't rotary cutters then. And so usually as a kid, my job would be to take a ballpoint pen, trace the cereal box template, cut them out with the scissors, like in the squares with all her scraps. And then she could push those through the sewing machine if she wasn't hand sewing them down. So, you know, it was just a, a handy uh, material for her to continue making and, and what was available. You know, my mom said that she would be able to bring home these big body bag sized scrap bags from Finger Hut that she could buy for like 25 cents or 50 cents. And so we have tons of that fabric and it's still on the farm too. <laughs> that stuff will be there forever. It's not going anywhere. Have you sewn with any of it recently? Have you gotten gone and gotten some of it? I sew with it all the time. I have big bins of it. People send me packages when they clean out their attics. Yeah. I have a series of quilts that I've made with double knit and I continue to work with it, especially right now because my hands are also heavy with arthritis and from overuse. I haven't been able to really use my hands for the last month and a half. Uh, so I'm actually, that's what I did is I went back to double knit polyester and was doing some hand stitching with it to see how far I could or how long I could stitch uh, without putting a lot of strain on my hands. That must have been hard over these last couple of weeks or months. It's still hard because it's yeah. I can't cut. It's still hard to cut, you know. So yeah. Yeah. I'm doing very, very minimal. It's very hard to not get in there and cut and throw stuff on the wall. So yeah, I bet. That sounds like it would have been really dif- difficult to to handle, um, given what you do. Um right. It is. Yeah. 
annoying. The ideas are piling up in my head and I can't do anything. <laughs> yeah. I was like, can I hire somebody to come cut for me? So that would be, that would really be helpful. The yeah. dogs are not any good for that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, um, so you learned to sew early on and quilt early on and, um, and did you always know you wanted to be an artist and did you go to school to become an artist? Yes. I, ever since I was a little kid, um, I grew up in a, in a not so kind and friendly household, a bit of an abusive, not a bit of a very abusive, alcoholic, drunk father, rager family. And, you know, my escape was to find a corner in my house away from the noise and uh, sit and draw or sit and color or you know that was always sort of my safe space and that's also where I would get you know compliments whether my family or from in school you know people would always acknowledge that I could draw or that I could paint or that I could do all these different things and so that was really sort of the lifeline uh, that's kind of pulled through my whole life. And so where did you go to school and what did you study? I studied art I studied I have a fine art degree uh, in painting and a part of a degree in photography, which I never finished. Um, I went to a school in St. Paul, Minnesota called College of Associated Arts, which has now gone bankrupt. Uh, (laughs) I like to drop that in there because uh, when I was in college, I, you know, was working on using materials that I've always used. And I was painting on fabric and did a couple of quilts for my for my classes as homework assignments and it sort of brought together everybody into this conversation where they took my art and had it up on the wall and it was a big discussion about you know let's talk about art and craft and does this belong in art school and you know it was pretty much ruled that those were considered craft and not art so I stopped using textiles at that time because of that conversation Um, and that's it's, it's always those kind of negative things when people try to tell you. If, if someone tells me, no, I'm going to probably show you differently. That's sort of how I roll. So, you know, that's something I've really carried with me all these years. Um, I think it's a silly conversation. I think it's a conversation that people have been having for 500, 600 years. That is ridiculous that we still have it. Um, you know, we're cutting things. We're making decisions. We're playing with color, just like in any other form of making anything. So to me, it's art. So I have a a series that I've been sort of reflecting on that conversation and thinking about what I was doing then. Photography was the early stages of computers in school. So we were learning Photoshop and all of that. So I've been using, going back and using images, photography, Photoshop, manipulating images, printing those images, combining it with traditional textiles and, you know, sort of playing on what would have happened had I stuck with quilts or surface design even at that time um it was just not language that was happening in my in my school at that particular time to be working on you know textiles so So it's it's interesting yeah totally when you graduated like how did you return to this in other words did you sort of paint and sort of give it a go you know in that direction or as a photographer and then how, what brought you back to textiles after that discouraging experience? So I stopped quilting at that time. I've been making quilts since I was like 13, 11, 12, 13, and that sort of range. Um, and then with college stopping, I didn't stop making clothing 
because pretty much I can, you know, because my father's work, my mother's work with garments, I can make clothing without patterns. So I kind of continued making clothing, kind of went away from making quilts. And then, of course, moved to New York after graduation. And I had a painting, I had a studio down in Soho where I was painting for a long time, had a few exhibits. I was doing painting and sculpture with a little bit of photography. And then there was a flood in my studio and I lost all of my artwork and and never really gave up on my fabrics. I still had my sewing machine. I still had textiles. Around that same time, I was married and we were starting our family. And just like anybody else, when, when there's a baby coming into the house, people start making baby quilts. <laughs> and that sort of re-inspired re, uh, me to play with textiles the same way that I deal with paint on a, on a canvas. So that's kind of how that happened. And, and first of all, before I was doing quilts, I, w- I started a children's clothing company called Bumblebeans, which was my old blog name. Um, and I was doing custom children's clothing with vintage fabrics before it was popular. Then it became popular and I decided I'd made a bunch of quilts and I thought the quilts were way more fun than doing buttonholes and shirt collars on little boys clothes <laughs> and really was diving into um, that play that 15 minutes of play that I do because when my daughter came along um, she was adopted at one years old and she started walking three weeks after we got her there's no time to do much of anything else at, at that stage so I was like sort of scrambling to go where how do I get my creative time what do I do to feel fill that part of me besides being a mom you know I still need to fill my creative side because I used to work 12 14 hours a day in my studio then to become a mom and not have any of that time that I just carved out that 15 minutes I put her down for a nap I'd get 15 minutes to do something creative that 15 minutes was sewing scraps together like my grandmother's quilts and that's really how all of this sort of snowballed Um, the fact that I had also on blogs around that time. Uh, this is in the early days of when blogs were very popular. And I found a couple of blogs that really inspired me. Tanya Rakuchi's blog was sort of who set me off. And I was like, wow, I could do patterns and things. Like I just never had the language to explain quilts other than the scrappy ones that I slept under as a kid. So then I started really researching star pattern, different star patterns, different block patterns, and sort of really starting to understand. Um, But most of the things that I was doing in those early days, which I still do today, is improv. All of that stuff started as improv quilting, and that all based from that 15 minutes of play, which rolled into the 15 minutes of play website that I started a long time ago before the book. Yeah, right. It sounds like you um, were involved in kind of the blogging world and and maybe had a blog you were Very saying bu- so. bumblebeans was a blog before it was a vintage you know clothing business um right. so when was this was this back in 2005 2000 what what years was this? 90s late 90s. oh in the 90s so it was really early on okay so like really like the first kind of craft bloggers yeah the blog the, the I was following the blogs I started the blog I think in the early 2000s okay 2008 2009 something like okay. that so all of that range from the late 90s to the to the early 2000s was the like children's clothing and sort of discovering quilts and starting to find a, a, a path basically. yeah and I I can totally relate to that feeling of like connecting with these bloggers who 
gave you the, as you said, the language to describe what you were seeing and ways to sort of um, dive into it and explore it um, that you hadn't thought about before, or hadn't been encouraged to do in the past. So it's it's like really um, a life-saving experience, especially when you are home with children and have to completely regroup um, as far as yeah. how you spend your time. Yeah. And then also that sort of um, nature of being a highly curious person. So whether it's I can adapt to just about anything. If whether I'm I'm currently working in textiles and color, great. I could be doing painting again. I could be digging in my garden and thinking about color. I could, you know, I could be embroidering. What whatever creative thing I can get my hands on, I'm sort of I'm all in. So I like to be able to know how to do anything that way. Anything that's creative, I'm game to do. So so as you're building up to, because I want to talk about QuiltCon in 2013. So it sounds like really quilting became something that you were really working on, um, you know, as as the main thing. I mean, you were saying you can do all of these different creative pursuits um, and being highly curious. They're all interesting. Um, but it, it sounds like during that period, sort of quilting took over. Yes, because it was way easier to work with color with a child than it was to have oil paints in the house. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so I can push fabric around on my design wall just like I push paint around on the canvas, right? I can eliminate a color. I can add a color. Textiles, paint, same difference. So I design and I work directly on my design walls. And that was easy to do mm-hmm. um, and steal those 15 minutes as I could uh, and be able to work improvisationally, build a bunch of tops, cut them up, change them, add things, whatever. I could, it's all stuff I could do very, very quickly without having to really follow a pattern. Today's episode is brought to you by Craftsy. And here's a message from Craftsy. At Craftsy, we know making. Whether you're new to the handmade life or looking to advance your skills, we have classes for all maker levels and interests. From knitting and sewing to quilting and embroidery, cooking, baking, paper crafts, and more, Craftsy's instructors guide and encourage you, empowering you to turn ideas into realities. And they have an exclusive offer for Craft Industry Alliance podcast listeners. Right now, you can get a whole year of their premium membership for only $1.49. Visit CraftsyOffers.com to sign up, and the discount will be automatically applied at checkout. For only $1.49, you'll get a full year of access to over 2,000 premium full-length classes. It can be challenging to know where to go to learn new things, especially when you're an absolute beginner. Craftsy's instructors help build strong foundations as they teach, setting you up for success and helping you fix mistakes as you go. Their enthusiasm and strong teaching style make, a learning, make learning accessible to all. If you're an experienced maker and looking for new challenges and fresh projects, Craftsy is for you too. From perfecting your fondant skills to tackling complex stitches, from eye-catching garden design to next steps in sourdough, Craftsy has advanced classes in all crafts from instructors who are experts in their field. With over 2,000 classes, including downloadable patterns and recipes, Craftsy has a class and a craft for everyone. Visit CraftsyOffers.com today and get a year of Craftsy Premium Membership for just $1.49. Start turning ideas into projects you can be proud of. Get this exclusive offer at CraftsyOffers.com. 
www.craftsy.com. Thank you so much, Craftsy. And now back to my conversation with Victoria. And and so this quilt that um, that won Best in Show was a double wedding ring quilt. And so I'm assuming maybe it wasn't, was it the first double wedding ring? I, I, I doubt it was the first one that you had made. Yes, talk, talk it was the bit. very first double it wedding It was the first one. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay, so talk yeah. a little bit about the process of making that. What What sort of inspired you to decide to try this and um, and what you think is special about that quilt that spoke to so many people? So that quilt, very much like my process in general, every time I make a quilt, I try to make the next one not look like anything I've made before. I'm always looking for a new technique to add. I sort of baby step my way across, you know, different shapes, different patterns, different ideas, different ways to construct things. So at that time, I had gotten a die cut machine and I I was sent the double wedding ring. So as I was looking around my studio and I was like, oh, I've got a double wedding ring. I've never made a double wedding ring. So let's make a double wedding ring. And at the same time, Jay McCarroll, who was designing Christmas, uh, Christmas, quilting cotton at the time, um, had sent me a bundle of his fabric. Jay McCarroll was the guy who won Project Runway the first or second season. I can't even remember what season it was anymore. but I had had his fabrics and he wanted me to sort of make something, put it on my blog and publicize for him his new fabric collection. And I had them and I didn't know what to do with them. And they sat there for a while and he sort of emailed me again going, hey, did you do anything with that? And I was like, no. So I took the fat quarters that he'd sent. I put them up on my design wall and I kind of left them there to looked at them, spent time. That was my 15 minutes of just sort of looking at them as fat quarters. And then I thought, well, I kind of focused on what I liked. I liked the blacks, pinks, and purples that were in those fabrics. So I thought I'll take the black, pinks, and purples. I started slashing the fabric and sort of did this whole big improv quilt top out of them, made the quilt top, didn't love it. Saw that double wedding ring die sitting in the corner and thought, well, I haven't made one. Let's take this. So I took that quilt top and I rolled it through the double wedding ring die, cut out all the parts of the, the the fabrics, the pieces that I used were the small melons and the, the concave squares in the middle, which was where the color was landing. So I put all those pieces up on the double on the design wall, which left all of the arcs of the double wedding ring, my design wall color, which is just cotton batting showing through, which made the pattern look in reverse. Because usually in a double wedding ring, you have all the color in the arcs. So my color placement was in the opposite position. And it, to me, it just made all these little goosebumps go off because it looks so different than anything that I had seen before. Plus it's like a puzzle. I'm left with all of these random pieces that I couldn't have foreseen how to build each one of those pieces. I just chopped them and I work with what I have left over. So being able to put those up on the wall, I started looking at them. I was kind of making uh, design ideas. We're making connections about where I live. Some of them look like Broadway and in New York city and how it kind of divides the block. That's kind of what was happening in some of the fabrics. Some of the fabrics were looking like the fields from the farm where I grew up. And I was making these connections between where I came from and where I lived at the time, where I still live in New York city. And I thought, well, there's a real interesting story going on there because at the same time as when the modern, that was the first quilt con and the Modern Quilt Guild was still very new, and that was a very big conversation. All of us that were in the industry at that time remember um, everybody going, why do we need modern quilting? What is modern quilting? Traditional quilters had a lot to say about it. Art quilters had a lot to say about it. So I was thinking about that, how you know, someone's like oil and water, 
country mouse, city mouse, just sort of combining a lot of those different ideas and being able to see that pattern in the opposite on my wall. I thought that all kind of fed into the story. So I wanted, I was trying to tell that story visually then. So making those connections, how the, the pattern kind of appears and disappears all at the same time. And I, I made that quilt top and I, I did it fairly quickly without, without sort of uh, planning a whole lot. I kind of put everything up on my design wall, which is often what I do. I cut stuff apart. I put it on the design wall. I might move a few pieces around and I move on because I get so excited about the next project. Plus, I get so many ideas because I was really fascinated by how that quilt top cut up. And I was sort of in the back of my head making a mental list of, wow, well, I can do that in the next quilt that I make. Or I can do this part and look at how this cut up. And that's interesting. And that reminds me of this other story. And I started jotting down all of these ideas. So I finished this quilt, made the quilt, sent it to Lisa Sipes, who at the time was a long armor, and she quilted it, sent it back, and I and Jay had emailed me again and said, So did you do anything with that fabric? And I'm like, Yeah, I did. I said, I, I think I'm gonna enter it in the quilt show, so I'm not gonna put it on my blog. And to me, because there was so much going on, um, Definitely identity-wise for me, where, again, I was thinking about where I came from. I was thinking about my grandmother's work. I was thinking about how that relates to what I do as fabric. It was a very emotional quilt for me. Plus, becoming a mother, you know, all of that leads to kind of figuring out what your who your identity is. And it was a very emotional quilt for me. But I, I finished it. I entered it in the quilt show. I almost didn't enter it. I got all my friends together, and I was like, I don't think I'm going to send it. I don't think people are going to get this quilt. And they're like, no, send it in, send it in. So I submitted it and, you know, I had no idea that people would be drawn to that quilt. And it's, it's yes, it won best in show. And that was such a shocker to me. And there was certainly, I don't know what the percent would be. <laughs> I'd like to say 50, 50 people loved it and 50% people hated it. Um, it's interesting how a quilt can sort of pull that sort of emotion to me that, is a successful quilt then because it made you feel something which goes back to that conversation about art versus craft because the definition of art is something that pulls an emotional response so to me that quilt was just answered that question for me so much that you know it's art it's provided an emotion it, it provided a response from people and you know that's that's exciting to me I think that is what a quilt is what did the people who hated it say? What what did they hate about it? I I don't, I mean, I remember reading some of the comments. I don't quite know why people said some people, somebody said <laughs> one comment on Facebook, and I love this so much. They had said the good and plenty color story does nothing for me. And I thought, oh my God, I'm like, that's amazing. I know it was meant to be a slam, but good and plenty. I mean, that sums up that quilt. <laughs> Yeah. Yes, it's a lot of pink and purple and white and whatnot. I I get the the connotation that they were going for, but I just thought that was the best description of that quilt. <laughs> it's been very good to me. It's given right. me a lot. So, so, I was going to say, you know, what what did it give you? So after this happened, which was, I mean, sounds like was unlikely. You didn't think it, this was going to happen, but it did happen, and so. What did it give you afterward? What happened afterward because of this? 
Well, like I said, that was the first double wedding ring that I made. And now I've made, you know, 80, 90 double wedding rings since then, because I said when I was making that quilt that I was making these mental lists. And so I was actually making a series of these quilts because I had made a list of 13 different ideas just off making that first quilt. And I went on and I made all 13 of those quilts. So when that quilt won and I was telling that story to somebody that I had made these that I was working on this series of 13 quilts, I got a call from um, someone at the Wisconsin Quilt Museum, Susan Wernicke, who was the president of the museum at the time. And she said, I heard you're making this series of double wedding ring quilts. And I'm like, yeah. And they're like, well, we'd like to show them. I'm like, but they're all in my head yet. <laughs> so, like, I still had to make them. And they're like, well, when you have them done, we'd like to show them. And they're like, you know, preferably we'd like to show them next year. And I'm like, okay. So I had to hurry up and get the rest of those quilts made. And, you know, that certainly put a fire under me to get those ideas made. And, you know, to me, everything that gets me from A to Z in the quilt, not, not the gathering of fabrics at the beginning, but all the stuff in between of sort of making, cutting, chopping up, destroying, <laughs> turning, sewing, whatever. Um, and before I get to those final stitches at the end, that's the stuff that I love about making a quilt, you know, the guts of it, figuring it out as I go. I don't draw it up on paper. I just have an idea in my head that I need to work it out on the design wall. It's like dumping a giant box of a thousand piece puzzle out on the table and then go, okay, now how am I going to make this fit together? That stuff just gets my, I get, I get all excited just talking about that. Like that just gets me going, you know? So the Wisconsin Quilt Museum sort of lit that fire to dump that box of puzzle pieces out and get those quilts made. And, you know, I haven't been able to stop because every time I make another quilt, I get another idea. And that's just, that's the best thing about what I do. And there's one quilt, I think it was from that show, that has a digital print of your hands work that's not in that original series that's a very okay. new piece okay yeah. so talk a little bit about that incorporation of digital printing into your work because I think it's such a cool sort of unexpected thing to find in a quilt and it really makes you look twice I mean I looked at that one for a long time the first time I saw it so um maybe talk about that one in particular and then also sort of the, the potential of digital printing as a as an artist Okay, so that quilt is the part of the series that I was talking about that I've now um, focusing on what I was doing in college, the photography, okay. the Photoshop, yeah. all of that. So combining sort of where I stopped at that moment in college, that series of the quilt that you're talking about is called The Space Between Heartbeats. And it has, it's a double wedding ring. It has vintage fabrics that are from a quilt top and blocks that have been cut up and dropped in there it has my hands in there because everything that I just spoke about as far as you know what I love about the creative process while I'm making a quilt that is that quilt that quilt is about having my hands on the wall with the fabrics pushing things around you know it's about what I just spoke about so incorporating taking my hands and drop that image into photoshop pulling colors out tweaking it the way that I want it to, enlarging it to the scale that I want it to, finding ways that it could fit with the scale of the double wedding ring that I was working in and sort of making that puzzle fit. 
So that quilt is is exactly all about what I was just speaking about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that quilt in particular was uh, in the Craft in America episode quilts. Mm-hmm. Um, there's shots of me in the studio with that quilt on the wall in parts um, long before even the digital aspect sort of fit its way in. So again, that while I'm working on something, I'm looking at it, I'm thinking about it. And uh, I always say I like to take an idea like a Rubik's Cube in my head and turn it around and look at it in 50 million different ways to go, where can this go? What's the story? What am I feeling? You know, and, and that was really that moment where I was like, it's, it's a, this quilt is all about my hands and the process. Mm-hmm. So that space between heartbeats, the title is, you know, I can get so lost in my process that everything is quiet. I don't usually have music or anything on in my studio that I'm so into it that I can physically hear my heartbeat when I'm working on it. So that's how the title of that quilt came. So, and that's also then why I'm doing the digital um, connections. So in that first 13 that I talked about from the Mm -hmm. ideas from the double-edged love, there is one quilt in that where I, I had that idea and I took photos around New York city in my neighborhood strip color out and it's in a quilt called you are here so <clears throat> all these years later of working on double wedding rings kind of went back and thought there's more that needs to be explored there mostly over that conversation and so i have that whole i have a whole series of those um digital pieces some of them were shown uh, last year again at my retrospect at the wisconsin quilt museum I have an exhibit of those that will be going up in France next year, a couple of them in Taiwan in November. So those are pieces that I just continue to play with, add and find yet another way that I could incorporate something different to be able to tell the stories that I want to tell. And what was it like to be part of the PBS Captain America series? Was that an interesting experience? Yeah, that was really fun. Um, It's always strange to have people in your space (laughs) but it's always fun to be talking about quilts that I can certainly never have enough to talk about when it comes to that but um, yeah that was a real um, a lovely thing to have happened Um, I enjoyed it it has a very good friend of mine Michael Cummings is in that Mm -hmm. and that's brought us together even more since we've done that Judith Content was in there as well and Susan Hudson all all people who work I adore and you know humble humble and grateful uh, to have been included in that can we talk a little bit about your stash and how you think about managing it and what comes in and and what goes back out and how you prevent it from becoming gigantic and things like that so how do you think about stash management um I have gotten rid of most of my personal stash um I used to have a, a, I had a five by five cubby that sat in my studio for a long time. And if that was full, I just would stop buying fabric. It was full, (laughs) but then I started designing fabric 10 or so years ago. I don't know how many years it's been now. Um, So pretty much now I'm only using my own fabric. So I've pretty much cleared out my personal stash. I am always looking for interesting, um, colors or prints that I might not be usually drawn to. Generally, if I, I always tell people that if you go into a quilt shop and you have a color that you instinctively go towards or love or buy often, think about the colors that you don't go to. So often I'll go into the shop and I'll be like, 
what's a color I haven't used in a long time? And, you know, then I'll look around to see if I can find something that way and bring in half yard or something into, to be able to boost my stash of something. So I like to have all colors. I don't want to exclude anything. And I just, I love them all. But I tend to get overwhelmed if I have too many things in my stash and in my studio. So I tend to not overbuy. Maybe I'm unusual that way. I don't know. Um, but now I have a whole room that's a bolt of everything I've ever designed. So I've got fabric coming out of my ears and it's still overwhelming. Talk a little bit about that process of designing fabric as a quilt maker um, and a fabric designer. Those two things intersect as far as like what you're creating as a surface design and how you're envisioning it being used and cut up into small pieces and incorporated into your art, other people's art later. Um, so. I'm assuming sort of there's a an evolution of thinking about it from the many years ago when you first started designing fabric to now, but talk a little bit about that, um, the the ideas behind it and, and how you approach designing fabric. Yeah, actually, my approach to it really hasn't changed over the years. I've spent a lot of time, I'm so process focused on how I'm making choices that I I kind of know what my process is for collecting fabrics when I do like a fabric pull for a quilt and also just from watching my own buying habits of the kind of prints that I love to use I love big florals I love a small print that has a lot of different colors I like a graphic print I like dots I love stripes and generally uh, my collections are very eclectic that way they kind of still fit that pattern every time that I do a collection like I need a light in there I need a darkest value I need a big floral of some sort because I can cut that apart and I'm going to get a lot of different colors in the space I like a small print with a lot of colors because that helps make if you're doing a scrappy quilt you got everything you got all the colors in there already so you can pretty much throw everything into the mix right I like uh, a graphic print modern print I like to sometimes throw a repro style print into there because those are the things that I buy I don't really just um, exclude anything um, I like to mix up all the different styles generally in some of my double wedding rings I have antique fabric I have vintage fabric I've got modern fabric I've got hand-dyed fabric like double knit polyester <laughs> I got embroidered fabric you know, all of those different kinds of things. So I, I tend to really follow that as a recipe when I'm doing the fabric collections. Um, yeah, that's kind of how I approach that. I'm always drawing. I Since COVID, I mean, I used to always just draw stuff on paper or, or use photographs. But since COVID, I, I got Procreate and I have a blast with that. I tend to draw 10 or 12 different ideas down on my Procreate every day as sort of just sort of a warm up. And then when I'm doing a fabric collection, I'm going through tons and tons and tons and tons of different things that I've drawn over the years and sort of finding the connections, you know, again, just like telling uh, like a quilt, like how is this fabric collection going to tell a story? Mm -hmm. So I have uh, uh, the next door garden fabric. I'm so influenced by my garden here at my house. Um, I have a collection coming out next year from my travels in Africa, which I absolutely think is the best place on earth. So I'm really excited to have that collection in my hands. That probably not till as I think it ships next spring. Um, yeah, so I'm just kind of constantly uh, doodling, drawing, sketching, 
photographing, making mental notes. I don't know what I would, I think iPhones are like the best thing ever. <laughs> I'm designing quilts on my phone. I take pictures on my phone. I'm coming up with blocks on my phone. You know, I'm just, that thing's a diary all in itself. And you do a lot of teaching. And I know before COVID, at least you were doing a lot of traveling in teaching yep. to, to places all over the world. And um, what does teaching give you and what, what do you get out of that experience? Yes. Before COVID, I was traveling constantly for teaching and I loved that. I did that for about 10 years of just teaching and traveling constantly. I, when I started, when my first book came out, 15 minutes of play, people were like, so, you know, are you going to teach? And I was like, I got nothing to teach. I'm like, then it took me a bit to realize that the 15 minutes of play website was already teaching what I was doing. So I, I had to sort of build that confidence to be able to stand in front of a bunch of people and kind of show them what I was doing. Once I started doing it and making those connections with other people and, and realizing that people can think the same way or can take an idea and turn it into another idea that I hadn't thought of. Again, teaching is just like making a quilt. It's, it's making all of those different connections, but in a, with people as opposed to making connections with different colors and fabrics that I'm working with. So teaching has given me so much um, and sort of broadened my eyes even more about the way that I create just by watching how people learn, what information goes in, mm-hmm. what what has to be repeated a few times. Like, you know, like where do people get stuck on, um, I always call it like color baggage or technique baggage. I love that. People, color, baggage. Like when people, color baggage is something I did back on the 15 minutes of play site because people would always say, well, I don't use orange. I don't like orange. I'm like, oh, I love orange. It's my favorite color. But I also found orange to be the hardest color to work with when I'm making a quilt. So, you know, thinking about why, why we, why we bring negativity to the process that we love. Right. Yeah. So like, why would you exclude a color? What's the baggage behind that? How can you let that go? Because, Hey, you know what? Your quilt might need Brown. <laughs> or like people come might in, just need it. <laughs> people come in thinking like red and pink clash or like, green and yeah, red or exactly. Christmas colors. You can't use green Old and red language. And all this stuff, stuff from elementary school, really. It's your life experiences that you're bringing to the table. And if you're trying to create from an open-minded space, that again, that curiosity is a very open-ended thing. So when you start putting boundaries on any of those things, you shut the door. It's like, a, I always say, it's like a communication. If you and I were sitting looking at each other in person and I started pointing my finger at you, you know, you, you get defensive, right? And you start backing up from it. And that's the same thing that you're happening. That's happening if you're doing that to your design wall. If you're going, well, I don't use brown can't use brown, then, you know, the conversation stops in your creative process. So I'm looking for any way to be able to keep that conversation open. So I want all the colors. I want all the techniques. I want to know how to fold curves. I want to be able to do miniature piecing. I want to be able to work in large pieces. I want to do improv, you know, like all of these different things, why seams, you know, all these things that people say are, you know, that they are scared to try, but you have to be able to let that go to be able to let something new into your process. And frankly, none of those techniques are hard to do. You need to do them about six to eight times 
I teach it. I watch people go through this all the time. They complain they don't like to do Y seams and they do one and it sucked. That was really hard to do. Then they do another one and they're like, that one will still suck. Let's do another one. And by the time they get to six, they're like, oh, I got it. I'm like, exactly. You like, you have to just do it a few times, get through it, have someone show you. And you figure six to eight times is what, an hour maybe out of your day. And all of a sudden you have a new tool in your toolbox. That means all those new quilt blocks are at your fingertips. And that just widens your horizon on the things that you can create. So, you know, I, I love that. I love giving people those moments in teaching where I can be like, you know what? That was your fourth one. You got a few more to do. Just wait. Trust me. It's going to work. <laughs> right. It's not that you're bad at this. It's just that you're a beginner. And I think that, you're a beginner. you know, yeah. yeah, these are lessons that you can take out into the whole rest of your life, right? Like, absolutely. That's you the best have thing to make it. the mistakes. You have to do it wrong. You have to do it terribly before you can do it better, right? You have to embrace that. You have to give yourself that permission to screw it up, do it wrong, struggle through it. And then all of a sudden you get your sweet spot. And, you know, it just takes off and running. And I love that when that happens. You have so a great, exciting to watch. You have a great phrase that you that you say, which is that you're precious, fabric's not precious, something like that. And I love that. Yes. Phrase. Yes. I, I, use, I was always putting that on quilts when I donate them. Um, I, and now I just use it in everything because I find that on the quilts, what I was putting was, you know, you are precious. This quilt is not precious use it, sit on it, spit on it, whatever. It's just a quilt, right? You're precious. The quilt's not precious. The same thing when it comes to cutting up fabric. You know, I've had people come in, they're like, I've got 30 yards of this fabric. I love it. And I can't cut it. I'm like, let's cut it. <laughs> it's, you know, it's not precious. You are precious. The fabric is not precious. There is always more pretty fabric. And if you love it, put it in a quilt because then it's going to last a lot longer and you're going to be able to look at it. So, you know, cut that stuff up, use it. I'd love to talk a little bit um, before we get to the recommendations about what happened during COVID. Um, you made some changes, moved to a new place, um, and grew your hair out, and <laughs> made some some and and maybe um, started teaching online. I don't know how much of those online classes were in existence prior, but um, but yeah, how did you how did you pivot during COVID? So many different things. My online classes have been up before COVID and I was actually teaching via FaceTime before COVID. Okay. I had my studio, I had my shop in New York City, I have my New York City apartment where I lived in New York City. We still have the loft in New York City. We also have a house on Long Island. So at COVID shut down, we packed up my store, we packed up my studio and we moved out to our house because we could be away from people. And as we know, it was very bad in New York City. So we moved to our house. And first it was in a, my shop stuff was in the bedroom. And then that didn't work. And then I had to clean out my basement. So then I moved everything to my basement. So my shop is still in my basement. We just went back to being online only. Clearly my staff, most of my staff was let go. I still have my main assistant, Kim, who's been with me this whole time. She lives in Missouri. So she has inventory there i have inventory here so between the two of us we were cutting orders and and doing all of that um and then i was working out a very small room in my house and then uh this past year or so i got a, a shed out in my garden which i've turned into a studio so i have a working space now out in my garden 
the shop is still in my basement and that's kind of how we continue to do things. I have not been teaching online at all during COVID. Again, my main classes are on my website and they're beautifully filmed and you can watch them over and over again. So there's no reason to have me teach it to you in person when you can buy it and watch it as many times as you want. <laughs> I think that's the best thing ever. Um, mostly also because I wasn't teaching because COVID was insane. Y'all are spending a lot of money during COVID. <laughs> I was cutting orders from 530 in the morning to nine o'clock at night. And that was before oh my, my assistant before my assistant had inventory. So that's all I was doing was filling all of these orders day and night, day and night, day and night. I wasn't making quilts. There was no way I could do lectures. There's no way I could get set up to be able to teach from here. And at the time I did not have space to be able to even teach from here. Um, and I still haven't wanted to do that. I've sort of taken a break from that because the online stuff has taken so much of my time. And plus also to finally get a groove uh, on sort of dialing back. And that was already on my plan just before COVID. Because as you know, in our industry, we work two or three years out as instructors. So two years before COVID, I'd made a plan to take a break at 2020 to cut back on my travel and teaching. So that actually happened at a very nice time because I was ready for a break to be able to do that and sort of refocusing. So I'm no different than anybody else to sort of refocus during COVID to go, you know, what's important? What do I need to be doing? What do I want to be doing? And, you know, so now I'm, uh, I teach, I only, not only, but I prefer to only teach five-day workshops. I like to be able to have my hands with my students longer to be able to focus on not just on technique, but design. So I'm often teaching at the Woodland Ridge Quilt Retreats, and I teach from my New York City loft, um, which I haven't been doing because we are renovating for the past year. It's been a year. We still have, we're still not going to get in until probably October. Uh, we had a building go up, so we lost right next to us. We lost all of our windows on one side. So we had to end up actually renovate our whole apartment because that was all of our light heating and air conditioning on that side. <laughs> So that's, that's a fun project. So that's taken up all the New York City time. So once that's finished, I'll probably go back to doing my five-day classes or three-day classes from my loft in New York City, which have been very popular. Um, and just a couple other places. I, I more focused on the five-day classes or the things that interest me most and also traveling international. I've got, still got places I want to go. So I'll be in Taiwan in November. I've got so cramps cool. next year. I have, I'm trying to finish up a whole bunch of pieces for my exhibit at the International Quilt Museum, which mm -hmm. is next April. So I'm sort of really slammed on trying to get those things finished. And I've got two trips to Morocco where I'll be leading a couple groups for 2024 and 2025, which are both sold out. Nice. So I'm really looking at international travel and kind mm -hmm. of it's a big old wide world. There's so much to see and I want to get out there and, and see it all. And I, I hope it's okay to ask about your hair because just, I know I always associated you with a really short haircut always. Yes. and, and yes. now it's really long. And so I, I don't know um, whether you just sort of couldn't get a haircut during COVID and we're like, Hey, yeah, going. I could not get a haircut during COVID. <laughs> I cut my husband's hair. I tried to get, my daughter gave me one haircut. She thought it was so stressful. She wouldn't do it again. So it ended up growing out. And uh, thankfully it was really ugly during all of that time. <laughs> now that it's long, I'm just trying to 
I got this far, so I figured I might as well hang on to it for a little bit. But that short hair will come back because, boy, hair is hot. It's so it much is. work. <laughs> it's just, it's just not me. Thankfully, this is not a video because I, I just don't <laughs> even like to do my hair. That's why the wash and go short hair was my go-to for mm-hmm. so long. I got quilts to make. I don't want to be fussing with my hair. So. <laughs> <laughs> I hear you. Um, so I want to get to some of your recommendations, if that's okay. So um, you wanted to recommend The Creative Act, A Way of Being by Rick Rubin. No, oh, it's just something that I'm interested in at, at the moment. Um, I, like I said, I'm obsessed with process. So Rick Rubin and Paul McCartney had done that three-part series. And, you know, I watched that series if you guys haven't watched McCartney 321 I think that's what it's called I think it's on Hulu um listen to it and listen to it about process because it's fascinating to me that the things that float my boat as far as how I design and what excites me when I'm designing is the same for musicians it's the same for you know different artists of different types and I just found that really really inspiring so you know Rick Rubin's amazing anyway um musically and for production wise so I picked up and I listened to that book and just ways of thinking and ways of really keeping your mind open like the thing that I was talking about about how we roll an idea around like a Rubik's Cube like I want all the I want to see all the angles of something and I think listening to some of his prompts and the way that he thinks uh it fits that mold and it helps you to think even more about your process. And you wanted to recommend Fabrics by E-Bond. We had E on the podcast a while back and I bought, I think her whole first collection, I believe from your shop actually. Um, And it's like my favorite fabric. I love, love. Speaking of it, I mean, I have it here and I'm like afraid to cut into it. So now I'm, I I made her a bird with a few of them, but other than that, I'm like saving it, but I should probably cut into it and just use it. So I'll have it, but Um, yeah. So, and, and I think you, you helped to like bring E to the fabric world, if I'm right, from what she was telling me when I had her on the show. Yeah. So I, you know, I adore Sarah Bond, who are cousins with E Mm -hmm. and Sarah's amazing. I always thought she was fabulous when she took one of my classes a long time ago. I thought this girl's going places. And I think I love what she does. And through Sarah, I was following E's work and I love bookmaking. It's also something I've done in the past. I love her surface design. And every time she was showing some things, I purchased some books from her and I was like, I want these on fabrics. Like I can see this in my double wedding rings. You know, I want to play with this. So I shot her an email and I was like, do you want to do fabric? Because I really want this and I want a bulk of everything. And she's like, sure. (laughs) So all I do is make the introduction and I'm very pleased that Free Spirit picked her up and continues to pick her up because I I just think they're fun. I love her colors. I love her patterns, her shapes, the way that she approaches it. She's a teacher. I think that comes through in her work. Um, And I just, I adore them both. And I'm so happy to see uh, the work out there in fabric. Absolutely. It inspires me. So it's so beautiful. I agree with you 100%. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, I only sell my own stuff out of my shop, but I do sell ease fabrics as well because I want them. So if I'm buying a bolt for myself out of everything. So yeah, I'll have the newest collection coming this fall. Also, I've had all the collections in there, but they'll, they'll be there. 
Um, and then your last <laughs> recommendation was walking to stimulate ideas. Absolutely. Um, I don't know if you ever noticed if you have something on your mind and you haven't been able to figure it out and you go for a walk and then all of a sudden you come back from the walk and you just feel so much better and you probably have figured out a solution for or whatever, whatever you were thinking about. So there's something uh, magical about the rhythmic mo movement of walking and the sort of left brain, right brain as you're walking. So if you're thinking about your problem and you are heading out for a walk and you're focusing on that problem and then you identify why it's a problem and then change your thinking about it to find the positive side of that, that's pretty much um, sort of a, a process of EMDR which is something I've done for years to be able to manage anxiety, social anxiety. Um, it's a natural way to sort of work through a problem. So getting out of your, out of your space of where you're having an issue and just going for a walk and focusing on it and sort of redirecting your thinking, you'll come out of it feeling so much better. So, and it's something I do. I try to go for a walk every day. Uh, it's a great way to sort of uh, manage anxiety. So go for a walk, people. It's healthy. It is. And and if you go for Mentally a walk. Mentally and physically. With someone too, something about if you need to have a conversation, if you're walking and talking, you're right. not face to face, you're you're side by side. And and so somehow you can have a conversation that you couldn't have sitting across from somebody and often yep. work out problems together, I find too. Absolutely. The power of walking is is not is physical and mental. It's a very good thing to do. Absolutely. So, well, Victoria, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. It was really great talking with you. Thank you so much for having me. Nice to talk with you. And you've been listening to the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Today's episode was brought to you by Craftsy. Calling all crafters. Are you ready to dive deep into your favorite crafting projects and learn new techniques along the way? Then it's time to join Craftsy Premium Membership. For only $1.49, you'll receive a full year of access to expert-led tutorials, patterns, and projects in every category you can imagine. With a massive library of resources at your fingertips, you'll be able to create your best work yet and bring your crafting dreams to life. Don't wait. Sign up now at CraftsyOffers.com and discover the endless possibilities of Craftsy Premium Membership. Thank you so much, Craftsy. Craft Industry Alliance is a community for craft professionals. When you become a member of Craft Industry Alliance, you get in-depth coverage of craft industry news, the opportunity to connect with fellow professionals for advice and support, and access to an educational library filled with ideas, tools, and resources to help you as you build your business. Join us at craftindustryalliance.org. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.